Get that microphone dick right in my face. Okay. <laughs> I know I was going to say something, but... <laughs> we were listening to um, the, the Suspendables on our way home. And Jungle Jim had a, like, actual funny joke for once. And he said, uh, uh, what's worse What's what's worse than waking up after a night of drinking and realize you have a dick drawn on your face? <laughs> is realizing that it was... Uh, traced. <laughs> Neither are good. But one is worse. Neither are good. <sighs> All, right, All right, let's get going. everyone and welcome to the newest episode of rabbit holes podcast i'm one of your hosts elise and i'm your other host andy and welcome to the show uh you may notice that andy sounds a little bit like death and so we are recording in separate homes today um to keep me from getting infected with whatever the fuck is happening over there oh my god it's awful (laughs) both it should be like illegal for both parents to get sick at the same time like i have to non-sick children, I am sick, and I have a man cult. So. Now, the only way to get around that is if you and Dan were to separate and would stop sharing the petri dish of your children. So that's true. That's true. A bit of a trade-off there. What do you want to do here? <laughs> <laughs> Some days that decision might be easier than others. <laughs> <laughs> uh no it's 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 bad though like and then we had to go into the city for a last minute like stuff for the house and then we're both coming out and i was like how are you feeling and dan's like i want a nap that really took the good out of me oh poor guy i'm like I'm like i also want what? a nap but so. well let's uh let's get through our stories and then you can go have a nap uh and then i assume at that point dan will be awake to go get the children and your fresh hell can start all over again <laughs> mm, yes uh who went first last week i'm sitting here trying to think i think it must have been you because i just posted about nazis and so i think that means i went second this is the problem with recording in advance sure <laughs> I know. So, so let's just assume that you went first last week, and I'll go first this week. <laughs> yes, I definitely went first, because I was like, oh, thank God I started with the lighter topic, and we weren't talking about Nazis yes. off the top of the post. I have to say, social media for my story <laughs> for this week has been very challenging, because I do not want our Instagram page infected with Nazism. So... But you could... There's a... There's a couple of really funny, I'm not sure if it was, I think it was South Park did like a South Park version of At Pupil. Okay. That movie where like, so there's some sort of funny cartoon, light, family guy, not light because <laughs> it's family guy, and but you could probably go, there was something I was thinking of today that I was like, oh, we should definitely link to that on the socials so okay good because if it's not an indiana jones meme i was kind of struggling for another idea (laughs) (laughs) all right but let's dive into our stories for this week and so when we were both prepping this uh story you and i were both having a hard time finding a topic 
Um, and so we vowed to give each other like a one word hint for whoever came up with the idea first. And you told me your hint was religion. So that uh, was the inspiration for my story this week. And I went through my giant to-do list of things on my phone, on my uh, notes. Uh, so I think this topic that I'm going to do popped up on my list after we had uh, talked about Tammy Faye Baker, because at one point I did like the fake eyelashes thing. Oh my God, that woman and her eyelashes and her eyeshadow and the mad mascara. Oh, it, she haunts my was, dreams. It was like 90s personified in terms of poor makeup decisions, like early 90s. <laughs> so that is the jumping off part for my story this week. And I'm going to talk about televangelists. So <laughs> buckle up because it's it's pretty much just like shit talking televangelists for the next 20 minutes. <laughs> Let's start, though, with a definition from Rational Wiki so that we're all on the same page about what I mean when I say televangelists. So Rational Wiki has an agenda, as you might guess from their name. Uh, so just keep that in mind as I read for you their definition. They say, televangelists are greedy preachers who love bright lights, TV cameras, and huge congregations that they never have to meet personally, unless, of course, that person is rich and or powerful. They often complain of the unholiness of liberals while convincing poor people to send in their life savings in the hope of gaining eternal salvation. They tend to avoid the unwashed rank and file unless they can profit monetarily from the meeting. They want everybody to be good Christians, a word that means Christ-like even though Jesus was poor and homeless. Rational Wiki is not fucking around. <laughs> oh, they're not wrong. No. Um, I would like to stress that when I talk about televangelists, I'm talking about a very specific type of person who is out to make a buck on the faith of others. I'm not passing judgment on the thousands of preachers that are out there, some on TV and some not, unless and until they do something that is hurtful to their congregation. So don't at me if you happen to like a televangelist. That's your business. This is mine. Maybe just don't be sending them money for prayers. Exactly. Yes. So as a cultural... Oh my goodness, this is going to be fun for social media. Oh no, it totally is. We can flag the John, the John Oliver piece. Yes, which I do talk about <laughs> because that was an awesomely hilarious run of jokes he made. Uh, so as a cultural phenomenon, televangelists emerged in the late 70s, early 80s, and these early television, tele uh, sorry, these early television evangelists, which is where we get the portmanteau of televangelist, were widely popular at their height, but were characterized by the fall from grace, pun intended. Shit. <laughs> that was me. Hold on. No, I can't mute it because then I can't hear you talking. So you're just Sorry. <laughs> Uh, so yes they were widely popular at their height but they're characterized by their falls from grace and we'll talk about some of it, those examples a bit later modern televangelists are becoming increasingly political which is extremely worrying for those of us who don't subscribe to this particular branch of Christianity and they can often be found on basic cables on Sunday mornings or on Christian media outlets, such as the Trinity Broadcasting Network and Daystar on demand. So you can get your preachiness thrown at you at any given time. Yeah, the look on your face is apropos at this point. <laughs> so let's. I've also enjoyed the, the. The what? 
the cringe. I, yeah, but the fact that I can see myself, so I can see all of my chins oh, yeah. when I do that face. I'm choosing not to focus on the little FaceTime Elise at the top of the phone because what I can see is not attractive. So, <sighs> the challenges of by distance. Uh, so, let's dig in on some of the stories about the holier than thou asshats that are the televangelists. And we, you okay there? Pepsi out the nose? Yeah. <laughs> So we can't start this story without touching on the pattern card for the bunch, and that is Jim and Tammy Faye Baker. So in the 1970s, the Bakers founded the Praise the Lord television network that they used to broadcast their ministry and raise funds. Of course, it was to raise funds. They raised so much so that in 1978, they were able to open Heritage USA, a Christian theme park slash water park slash 500 room hotel combo. And of course, because they were a church, it was all tax exempt. <laughs> so we're talking pure profit. Realizing that they would be great as property moguls, their next project was to build a luxury hotel tower. And to do that, they solicited $1,000 from each of their followers to bankroll construction costs. In exchange, those who paid were promised three night stays every year for the rest of their life. So kind of like a timeshare, if you will. As the bakers became more and more famous, investigative journalists did their thing, and a lot of dirty laundry went on display, including a story about this time that Jim and an employee date-raped a secretary, at which point the church paid out $279,000 in hush money. Uh, at which point the IRS started asking some really awkward questions because the hush money happened to come from the church's donation pile. So... Yikes. That's probably not what people had in mind. No, it was not. Uh, and so there's a bit of a problem with that as far as the IRS is concerned. Yeah. Uh, the IRS actually considers that using church money for personal purposes, at which point it's not tax exempt. <laughs> so in uh, the, the IRS does their whole thing. A great big investigation finds out just how badly uh, the bakers had been dipping into the church's coffers and lying their own pockets. And so in 1989, Jim Baker was sentenced to 45 years in prison on 24 counts of fraud and conspiracy after funneling approximately $158,000 in donations from the church into his own pockets. So that was just straight to him, separate of like this hush money payoff. As I said, Jim Baker, 45 years in prison, 24 counts of fraud and conspiracy. The world is terrible, though. I don't know if you were aware of this, but it is, in fact, a horrible place. Uh, and he only served five years of that 45-year prison term. Yeah. Of course Part of the did. court settlement included a liquidation of assets to repay those who did actually tithe their $1,000 each into that mega hotel project. And uh, so as part of the settlement for that, they had to be paid back. And when they finally managed to pool all the money together, it turned out that each person in the settlement got a wallet busting $6.54 each back. So that other 993 bucks just disappeared. <laughs> Poof. Yeah. <laughs> The bakers probably could have weathered the financial storm because if you're sending in your money already, you're really not concerned about what your preachers are going to do with your money. So that wasn't their downfall. 
the downfall actually came from the sexual scandal resulting of that from that date rape and when that kind of could not be plastered over uh, Tammy Faye and Jim their relationship broke down and the marriage ended and this whole online or televised ministry fell apart recently Jim Baker has been on the hustle trying to sell properties in Branson Missouri uh, that is in this very special enclave that is designed to allow residents to survive the inevitable apocalypse that he's predicting is coming. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Tammy Faye, on the other hand, has done a pretty good job of rehabbing her image. From what I've read online, a lot of the articles written about her now are very sympathetic. I'm not entirely sure I agree that that's a deserved rehabilitation but for what it is out there people seem to be pretty positive about her and she is now generally seen as the poor put-upon wife whose husband was at fault for the breakdown of their marriage and the destruction of their televangelist lifestyle again i'm not sure i agree but her pr people have really earned their money from that well i mean like she's not she's not responsible for his like sexual scandal, but I'm pretty sure she knew where that money was coming from. And she wasn't saying no to those dollar store yeah, mascaras. Exactly. I think the last time I saw her on any sort of television show, she was getting her makeup like permanently tattooed on her face. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, I guess if you've had a look for that many years, you're just going to commit to it. But tattooed makeup always makes me nervous. <laughs> yeah. A, it could go horribly wrong. And B, you are stuck with that shit for life. Well, the face, the the cells regenerate faster, but yeah. Like, That's true, do yeah. you want a tattoo gun anywhere? But then it looks yeah, bad. But do you want a tattoo gun anywhere near your eyes? <laughs> I certainly don't. I don't know. <laughs> so on to the next in my line of questionable human beings. One of the most flamboyant televangelists that I've ever seen has to be Benny Hinn. Not to be confused with Benny Hill, although both are equally ridiculous. Uh, Hinn is one of those healing and prosperity preachers. And now these are two distinct yet overlapping categories. Let me break them down for you. A healing preacher uses the supernatural power invested in them by God to heal people of all kinds of physical and mental illness. Jesus is said to have cured the blind and helped cripples to walk. So these preachers are trading on that grand tradition. Uh, I've watched a couple of docs over the years that kind of explain why this type of preacher is so successful. And what it seems to come down to is the fact that the human mind is a very powerful thing. And if you are absolutely convinced in your faith and the capabilities of your preacher, then it's possible that some minor and or reversible conditions can in fact be fixed or reversed, if not permanently, then at least temporarily after one of these healing sessions. So, it's a case of like mind heal the body you are not going to regrow limbs though as some preachers have claimed they can do for you there was an episode of supernatural many years ago who there was a preacher that was claiming that they were like healing people and they actually were is because they were you know killing other people the person didn't know i guess somehow like there was a demon involved the wife nice um, and the person, the husband, who was the preacher, who was healing people by their hands, wasn't aware that he was hooked up to some demon that his wife had sort of channeled. So it was this whole thing. I mean, supernatural writers may not be wrong. <laughs> who knows, really? <laughs> it's not any more plausible than 
Like, they found out because, like, they kept healing people, and then, like, people a couple of towns over would die of the same condition. Oh. So, like, healed someone who had a default defective heart that someone died that was in generally very good health all of a sudden had that condition. Well, there you go. So it's basically swapping one life for another. I guess it's not any more or less plausible than some a-hole on stage yelling you're cured and it actually working. So, yeah. (laughs) The power of Christ compels me. Exactly. (laughs) So back to Han. Like a lot of his fame comes from that healing preachers, but he's also a prosperity preacher. And this is the most common type of televangelist that we see. And they're probably the shadiest bastards out there that I've ever heard of uh, because it's the foundation for how they become so stinking rich is trading off of this prosperity mission. They trade on the simple principle that if a viewer donates money to them, God will hear their prayers and make them rich. I don't know how someone hears that and whips out the checkbook rather than asking, wait, what? But it's a successful as hell scheme and it has always been so. And it is how the bakers, for example, can become property moguls and build theme parks because it is such a common practice in the televangelist world. So as a healing preacher, um, Benny Hinn is known for removing his suit jacket and whipping it in the person's face that he's healing while yelling, bam, you're healed at them. And uh, there are gifts and they are glorious. (laughs) And we know what our social media will be all week. Yep. Just Benny Hinn, just whipping linen jackets in people's face. That's all I need. (laughs) It's linen? They're usually white white linen too. (laughs) So Hinn's reputation took a hit a few years ago when one of his, I'm going to air quote this, healings of a legally blind congregant didn't go well and that blind congregant still couldn't see. And oh, by the way, all the money that had been raised specifically for that person actually just disappeared. So. Oh, of course. Of course. In 2017, Hinn's Northern Texas Compound, which I mean... Texas compounds and religious, not a good combo. I think we've seen that throughout history. (laughs) Anyway, in 2017, this compound was a subject of a joint raid between the IRS and the U.S. Postal Service, of all federal branches, looking for evidence of tax evasion and organized crime. Uh, A couple of years ago, the reason why this investigation started was that it was estimated that Hinn's personal net worth was about $40 million. (laughs) Yeah. So when faced with questions about that, he would say things like, quote, we get attacked for preaching prosperity. Well, it's in the Bible, but I think some have gone to the extreme with it. Sadly, it's not God's word what is taught. And I think I'm as guilty as others. Ah, yes. The dirtbags with feather argument in full force. So. Uh, the IRS and ESPIS were investigating him to figure out where exactly he got this $40 million worth of personal wealth. Investigations continue, but I think we all know it's probably from those BAM, you're healed incidences. But it is what it is. Mm-hmm. Speaking about dirtbags, we have to talk about Ernest Angley. He's another one of these prosperity preachers, and elderly single women are his favorite targets. Oh, I mean, congregants. More Pepsi out the nose, huh? (laughs) 
This has to be one of the worst documented televangelists that I read about, uh, especially when you look at the case of Bridget Pollard, who was kind of connected with this guy in her late 70s when she was widowed. Uh, She was living alone and she was also suffering from dementia. Her family were shocked to find out Mm -hmm. that she wrote a check for $340,000 to Angley's church. Yeah, that's a, that was a considerable chunk of her money that she was going to use to live for the rest of her life. It turns out that a member of uh, the church had befriended Pollard and convinced the woman to sign over power of attorney to her. It was then that Pollard's money was quote unquote donated to the church. Chicago's public guardian office took over the care of Pollard when it became very clear what had happened. And what had happened was this church member had fraudulently gotten a hold of this woman's savings. Uh, And the public guardian's office is now, in fact, suing the church in hopes of getting the money back for her. In the meantime, Pollard is living in an assisted living facility as her health declines. And that's not even the worst slash creepiest part of the Angley story. Probably no surprise, but Angley's church is loud about their anti-homosexuality position, as you probably should not come as a shocker. What is a surprise is that Angley has a reputation for fondling his male congregants. But like, for the Lord, so it's okay. (laughs) Let me explain. (laughs) So he encourages his congregants to get vasectomies for the gents and abortions for the ladies to address his concerns about overpopulation. I know, right? Like a real shocker about the abortion thing, but there it is. Yeah. Yeah. So it all comes down to he's worried that uh, the earth is overpopulated. So whatever you can do to like limit that, good call. So the thing is, is that he gets real hands-on with his male congregants post-vasectomy procedure, though. And I mean that literally. He's been known to show up in post-op recovery rooms and, quote, lay hands on genitals to pray for the swelling to go away and to encourage healing. I know, Wellington, it was weird. <laughs> So where most people would get themselves a bag of peas, these congregants just allow Buddy to roll up and uh, give him a handy, I guess. Yeah. (laughs) But we can't talk about sexual hypocrites in televangelism without talking about Ted Haggart, who Grunge perfectly described as chiclet-toothed. You might remember him. He's got that chiclet face. Is he method man-ass? Yeah. (laughs) So when, like, personally, I don't follow the televangelist kind of celebrity out there, so I only heard about him as he started his decline. Uh, And when that started, he had been president for the National Association of of Evangelicals for three years, and he had a wife and three kids. Then the news came out that Teddy also had a meth habit that went hand in hand with his male prostitute habit. So the sex worker that blew the lid off of the Haggart story didn't know who he was at first, but Ted had a penchant for pillow talk and gave himself away uh, after multiple sessions of meth-fueled sex with a sex worker. So it all came out that Haggart wasn't exactly living the life that he preached, and his ministry fell apart. He lost a lot of um, his followers and his reputation took a big hit. 
Then it looked like he had redeemed himself enough to come back into the televangelist fold. So he made enough apologies, seemed like everything was going to go well. And that was until in 2009, uh, HBO aired a documentary that included a whole host of new allegations against him. And that was that. He had used up his second chance and no one was quite willing to have him back. But as further proof that this guy wasn't actually in it for the faith and was actually just in it for the fame and fortune, he could not stay off of TV and in 2012 appeared on an episode of Celebrity Wife Swap. Can you Oh dear can God. you guess which I'm going to use air quotes celebrity he swapped wives with and I would like you to think of an equal kind of what the lateral move for Ted Haggart would be in this case. I have no idea. No, okay. So on this episode, again, of a 2012 series celebrity wife swap, he traded his wife with Gary Busey. <laughs> oh, dear God. And that had to have been the most insane sentence that I've said in a really long time. <laughs> Even um, Wellington. He was he was highly um, featured in that documentary Jesus Camp too. Yes, yes, he was. As Ed, and that was just before his downfall. Yeah, exactly. So that's why he came across as this like big pillar of the community, and very quickly <laughs> that changed. <laughs> So then we come to the granddaddy of all dirtbags, and that has to be Pat Robertson. Robertson and his 700 Club have long been a mainstay in the telev- televangelist circuit. I think all you need to know about him as a human being can be summed up in his response to the grab them by the pussy tape from President Trash Monster, which he brushed off as, quote, macho talk, compared Trump to a phoenix, and said, quote, they think he's dead, he's come back, and he came back stronger as if that was a good thing you know zombies come back too and no one's really celebrating that so (sighs) (laughs) things that pat robertson has preached against in the past include dungeons and dragons yoga and the people of scotland in general (laughs) (laughs) one of the least offensive groups of people they're just so adorable (laughs) like how can you be mad at them Uh, But his hate for Dungeons & Dragons came out of the Satanic Panic era that we had talked about in an early episode that our listeners should check out if they haven't. Uh, Robertson was one of those leaders that kind of put two and two together with the Dungeons & Dragons is all about Satan. So that's where that piece of the panic started. Robertson is best known to me, at least, for pointing out um, the parts of society that he doesn't agree with, such as homosexuality, independent women, and premarital sex, and blaming them for catastrophes. Such claims have included the gays caused the Holocaust, feminism is responsible for socialism, anti-family political movements, women leaving husbands, killing children, practicing witchcraft, destroying capitalism, and lesbianism. And I'm okay with a few of those, so I'm, I kind of agree. I just don't think it's a bad thing, so... Uh, also he's the one who famously went on air and said that Hurricane Katrina was caused by abortions because the eye of the storm looked like a fetus so (laughs) and he's on yeah he's on that station Huckley Street oh yeah he's no good Uh, 
Lightning round. Creflo Augustus Dollar Jr. is a prosperity preacher who has the unmitigated gall, who had the unmitigated gall to launch a fundraising campaign to purchase himself a private Gulfstream jet with a sticker price of $65 million. He asked that each of his 200,000 followers donate $300 to the cause, which worked because in 2015, the church announced they were ready to make the purchase. So, the Copelands, Kenneth and Gloria, are special to say the least they've been quoted saying things like quote who needs medicine when you have the glory of god Uh, if you believe in jesus hard enough ptsd isn't a real thing Uh, quote we got a duck season a deer season but we don't have a flu season jesus himself gave us the flu shot he redeemed us from the curse of the flu so should have known i didn't need to actually get that shot i just needed to get me some bible but there it is uh fyi uh the year that uh gloria made that comment about the flu in her part of the country there was the worst flu epidemic in recent memory and nearly 70 people died so the copelands refused to fly commercial is she from texas Uh, wellington feels she is but i can't remember off the top of my head Sorry, I have both cats <laughs> wandering around right now. This is what happens when I'm not there. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so another odd little quirk about the Copelands is that they refuse to fly commercial because as Kenneth described, quote, you can't manage that today. This dope filled world and get it along tube with a bunch of demons. It's deadly. So, I mean, yeah. <laughs> uh, there's a lot to unpack in that statement there is and none of it's worth doing so we're just gonna let it slide uh fun fact at one point kenneth copeland was a spiritual advisor to president trash monster (laughs) probably no surprise uh jets seem to be popular on christmas wish lists because televangelist jesse duplantis also wanted one on the issue he's quoted as saying now some people believe that preachers should have jets I really believe that preachers ought to have every available outlet to their um, outlet to get this gospel preached to the world. Uh, In the same 2018 video, he showed off a photo of three planes owned by his ministry that bore the caption, it's not about possession, it's about priorities. But it's not just jets, it's other luxury vehicles. John Gray, a megachurch pastor from South Carolina, bought his wife a $200,000 Lambo SUV for their eighth wedding anniversary and posted about it on Instagram with the caption, quote, God helped me to make my my wife's dreams come true. As you might expect, there was some backlash, and he posted a tearful follow-up video claiming the car was bought with not a nickel, not a penny from the church funds, including his salary. To which I asked, where do you did you get the money for this car? Oh, which no answer seems to be available. <laughs> so I think we got another Tammy Faye Baker on in our hands with that one. If you are looking for a funny recap of where the phenomenon stands now, I encourage you to look at John Oliver's work on them televangelists from 2015 so that year oliver with rachel dratch's help started the ministry of our lady of perpetual exemption he worked with a tax lawyer to see if he could get his ministry qualified for irs tax exemption status and it kind of worked the last week tonight studio was claimed to be a place of worship his audience was his flock and he did incorporate as a church out of texas regardless of the fact that it was based in new york Again, Texas. 
to gain church status, he had to prove that there was some spiritual activity happening, and so he claimed that having congregants silently meditate on the nature of fraudulent churches was a form of ritual and worship. And so that's why he was a church. <laughs> uh, also, on a side note, Bob's Burgers has a really good episode where the kids get the local aquarium registered as a church with the IRS. Also worth checking out because <laughs> it just roasts the crap out of these fake churches. <laughs> So John Oliver covered the topic because these televangelists are still dangerously active in society. One of the biggest names currently is that of Joel Osteen. Based on his TV deals, motivational speaking, and books, it's estimated that Osteen has a personal net worth of $50 million. He has a megachurch in Texas and drew a lot of fire from the press and the public when he refused to open the building as a place of refuge during Hurricane Harvey in 2017 claiming that the place was flooded or would be damaged by having people allowed in. People in the neighborhood, however, headed on down to Old Steen's church and took some photos that proved the place was bone dry and <laughs> could very easily have housed a lot of the people displaced by the hurricane. Because it's a megachurch, it's massive. Yeah, exactly. Uh, oddly enough, as I was prepping the story, I realized that I had mentioned President Trash Monster far more than I had actually expected or would have liked to this week, uh, especially considering he clearly has no soul or religion. So I was a little befuddled as to where the link was going to come from. Um, but he does understand and utilize the power of televangelists. And he kind of is one himself when you consider the only thing he cares about is himself. So it makes sense that he gets hooked up with these type of people. In early November of this year, Trump appointed Paul, uh, Paula White to be one of his advisors. The move was seen as a way to show up Christian conservative votes in advance of the 2020 election. And the White House released the following statement about the move, quote, Paula White, a televangelist based in Florida and personal pastor to President Trump, whom he has known since 2002, has joined the Trump administration in an official capacity, according to the statement. Miss White will work in the Office of Public Liaison, the official said, which is the division of the White House overseeing outreach to groups and coalitions organizing key parts of the president's base. Her role would be to advise the administration's faith and opportunity initiative, which Mr. Trump established last year by executive order, and which aims to give religious groups more of a voice in government programs devoted to issues like defending religious liberties and fighting poverty. I can't think of any group that needs less of a voice in government these days, but apparently we need these. So White is another one of these prosperity preachers, and in October of this year, so a month before she was appointed to this position at the White House, she told her followers that they had to financially support her ministry, even if they were struggling, or God would kill their dreams. What a class act. The same week, she told viewers that some states had passed laws declaring the Bible was hate speech, and so they had to elect Trump again so he could get more judges onto the courts that would protect their right. Newsflash, all of that is lies. <laughs> no state has ever oh, passed yeah. anything about the Bible being hate speech. But there it is. If this broad keeps up with the blind faith and love of Trump and all he can do for her, I suspect she'll be around for a while and very vocal, neither of which are good things. And so as I was going through prepping the story, I did come across one televangelist that I haven't talked about because his story is such a wild ride that deserves its own rabbit hole. And that's totally, uh, sorry, Tony Alhamo. Uh, 
This is the clearest case of where televangelism and cult leadership has crossed. So stay tuned for a near episode in the future where I'm going to cover this batshit crazy story, which when I started Googling in preparation for next week's episode, what popped up a lot was crystal airbrush jean jackets. So (laughs) I want to see a crystal airbrush jean jacket now. Airbrushed crystal jean jackets was uh, on the top like three Google page results. So I decided that that had to be a a rabbit hole in and of itself. (laughs) Uh, Yes, I agree totally. Well, I'm glad that uh, I've also done religion, but cults sort of. So my weeks, uh, my rabbit hole this week was inspired by an episode of This is a Disaster, Mm -hmm. which is a local podcast to Elise and I. Um, It was during the end of their Egyptian famine. Was it the Egyptian famine? Maybe the Egyptian famine episode. A famine episode uh, where one of the hosts was talking about the music this story inspired him to listen to. And Peter mentioned the band was influenced by the Process Church of the Final Judgment, which is an offshoot sect of Christianity. That piqued my interest enough for me to actually write it down on my scribble pad. And uh, then when I looked into it, I was not disappointed. So you might recognize the name from your research into the satanic ritual abuse uh, conspiracy fad, a.k.a. the satanic panic of the 80s. During this panic, as you said, lives and families were torn apart. The credibility of clinical psychology was set back at least 50 years and it was a big time for the publication of sleazy, poorly researched, explos- mm-hmm. exploitative, true crime books. One, bu- one such book was Mary Maury Terry's enthralling 640-page bestseller, The Ultimate Evil, which attributed the man to Charles Manson, the Zodiac Killer, Bobby Kennedy's assassination, and the Son of Sam murders to a global <laughs> satanic underground movement. Mast- sorry underground mastermind by a sinister cult known as the Process Church of the Final Judgment, hmm. led by a shadowy and charismatic Robert de Griston, who had disappeared from the public view as of the early 1970s. He disappeared from public view and became a toll booth operator in New Jersey. <laughs> as one do. I mean, that's where I'm thinking of coming to. <laughs> uh, this conspiracy theory was so widespread that you could you can find so many clips of experts unlike CNN and other news programs, talking about this modern boogeyman. It's so funny, especially, like, I will take you through the dryer. So, but with most things, the truth about the Process Church of the Final Judgment is far more mundane uh, than it sounds. However, reliable accounts about the church are fragmented and scattered because it was the 60s after all. Right. Uh, there is a book called Love, Fear, Death, The Inside Story of the Process Church of the Final Judgment by Adam Parfait and uh, Genesis Odridge. This book uh, does have accounts from real process insiders about their years in the controversial sect. However, most of it is the first-hand accounts. 120 pages of this book is uh, from this one guy, Timothy Wiley. He was one of the original Circle members who founded the group in London with the original founders. 
Um, I didn't read this book, but the pit, the pit bits I did see, um, gotta say, Timothy was not a fan of Marianne, who was one of the uh, original founders, calling her megalomaniacal <laughs> and scheming. And I get the meat of my story from Wikipedia because it was the least biased place. <laughs> oh, you know you're in for a wild ride when you say that about a topic. <laughs> yeah. So the Process Church of the Final Judgment, commonly known as the Process Church, was a religious group established in the United Kingdom in 1966. It honestly sounds like it would have been established by accountants. Like the Process Church? Like what? Like there's no originality or fun in that name. Uh, you're not going to be surprised when I tell you how they started. Okay. <laughs> uh, so, its founders were British couple Marianne McLean and Robert de Grimstone, Grimstone, originally Robert Moore. And it spent uh, and it spread through parts of the United States, the United Kingdom, and a few other spots in the world during the latter 60s and 70s. It's hard to pin them down as uh, down to a theological umbrella. Some scholars classify them as a form of Satanism, others as a form of Christianity, or an offshoot of Scientology. That sounds like a real grab bag, if you ask me. Oh, it is! <laughs> uh, Mary uh, Ann McLean was British, but spent uh, a couple of years in the United States. She later claimed that she had a relationship with the boxer Sugar Ray uh, Richardson, uh, although uh, his son later refuted this. She moved back to England, uh, and from about 1959 until I'm not entirely sure, she worked as a high-end prostitute in London servicing prominent figures. Yikes. Yeah. Prominent figures in British business and politics. Oh, boy. And all I know about Robert is that he was born in Shanghai to British parents with the last name Moore and served in the British Household Cavalry from 1954 to 1958. Hmm. Uh, Mary and Robert met while both members of the Church of Scientology in the early 1960s. The duo was ejected from or left, depending on the source, the Church of Scientology in 1962 after they were declared submissive persons. So they came from Scientology. And when they bounce you, that's that's telling. Exactly. Um, together, and they married the following year, together they set up Compulsive Analyst, a group which utilized both the organizational methods of Scientology and the ideals of psychologist Alfred Adler. In establishing this company, they were financially assisted by a lawyer friend. Robert distinguished the methods of Compulsive Analyst from Scientology in that it did not claim that its benefits were infinite stating that we are not offering superpowers by a means that people can live on this, but just a means that people can live on this side more effectively. In 1966, the regular clients of the compulsive analysts formed a new group, The Process, which took an increasingly religious character, and by that we mean cult. Mm -hmm. uh, according to Timothy and his peeps, what followed was a rapidly expanding systematic program of ritual sacrifice, a tonal music designed to perpetrate, perpetrate the apocalypse through the summoning of a Celtic death god named Samhain. I found that nowhere else. Also, isn't Samhain a holiday? It's not a, a deity? Uh, uh, yeah, uh, not really. Like, yeah, it's, it's, it, it's yes. like saying Christmas is going to murder so a many... ball. Like, no. 
Like, you've confused things here. In March 1966, 25 members of the process moved to a commune at 2 Belfer Place in Mayfair, an affluent area in the west end of London. In May, the group left London and started a pilgrimage of sorts to find a permanent home. First, they relocated to a, a remote area in England, and then in June, about 30 church members moved to NASA in the Bahamas. From there, they spent the rest of the summer seeking a more permanent location. In September of 1966, the group members moved to Mexico City. They obtained an old bus and began driving across the Yucatan Peninsula for a place to settle, like you Mm -hmm. do. They found a location known as Utah, which meant the end in the Mayan language, and the group took this as a sign that they should settle there. I saw the sign. They set about establishing a community, uh, although would only remain there for a few months They faced opposition from both locals and the parents of several church members who enlisted anti-cult groups to try and deprogram their children using legal means. The 60s were a wild time. I know. Can you imagine, like, having to call up the Yellow Pages and be like, no, you need to list us under deprogramming services because we go and get children uh, back for parents. Like, and there were a few of these people around. (laughs) Oh, I know. There was groups. You had choices. Yeah. It was a competitive There was method. a whole category <laughs> in the... Yeah, exactly. Uh, it was in Mexico that the group class- clarified its hierarchical structure with the de Stones at the top, who were referred to as the Omega, followed by those who were regarded as masters, then priests, then prophets, and finally messengers. Okay. Are you getting the sense yet? Uh, So let's pause our pilgrim story to tell you about their teachings. So the initial phase of the group's beliefs, Mary and Robert taught that there was only one supreme deity, God. And the focus of the group's activities was to transform those aspects of human nature which defied God. Many of the group's therapeutic practices or processes, hence the name, and concepts were ripped off from Scientology, including the term processing. In these therapy sessions, the group utilized an electronic meter titled the P-Scope, which is based on the Scientologist's E-meter. Yeah. <laughs> they, were not try- they were not trying to, like, cover that up. Nope. In 1967, they introduced the notion of four div- divinities to the group's beliefs. McLean and Moore were influenced by um, Jutian philosophy, in particular Carl J- Juntz interpretation of the christian trinity he had argued that the trinity concealed a fourth element hidden in the human subconscious which was the devil (laughs) he believed that admitting this fourth component of the quadrancy resulted in psychological unbalance and this is where we get the tie to satanism okay so around this time they started to preach the existence of four gods who were regarded not as little literal entities but as inner realities existing within each human personality according accordingly these deities were not worshipped these names of these deities were drawn from traditional judo-christian religions they were known as jehovah lucifer satan and christ and were collectively referred to as the great gods of the universe uh flag on the play uh lucifer and satan same thing one could argue, would argue. So, 
The church stated that Jehovah was strength, Lucifer is light, Satan is separation, and Christ is unification. Each member was instructed to follow the God or gods which best suited to them. Everyone understood. Everyone was understood as a combination of two of these gods. Wait, wait, wait. It's Hogwarts. It's Hogwarts. It's religious Hogwarts, Andy. Yeah. That's what they've done. They've created religious Hogwarts. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so everybody was two of the houses. <laughs> I personally uh, am a Hufflepuff slash Ravenclaw. That's just me. <laughs> uh, so Robert, for instance, described himself as a blend of Lucifer with a Lucif- Luciferian and Christian and Christian traits, while McLean, Mary, regarded herself as a combination of Jehovah, Jehovah and Satan. None of these deities were considered evil, but basic patterns of human reality. They taught that the real devil was humanity or the gray forces, which were understood as representing the compromise and conformity of the masses. Okay. So, again... Conforming was, you know, being a square mm. is, you know, the real evil. They were in Mexico at this point, right? Around this time, yeah. So I'm going to guess the peyote was amazing. <gasps> I, I've no, yeah, the, the LSD, the, yeah, oh God. <laughs> so as indicated by the group's name, the Process Church of the Final Judgment, the church taught a form of millennialism. Or uh, they all believe that Apocalypse was on top of us. Yep. According to the process, the four separate divinities would be unified at the in the end times. The reconciliation of opposites was seen by Robert, as stated in Matthew's 5.44, when Christ tells his followers to love their enemies. More taught Christ's enemy was Satan, and the un- u- reuniting of the gods was achieved through love. Communal life of the church members was strictly regulated. Amongst group members, sex and the use of drugs and alcohol was strictly rationed, with these practices being regarded as a distraction from the spiritual work. Although, if you listen to Timothy, or Timmy as I like to call him, the still uh, now the the group still engaged in orgies and flatulation. So, like flagellation. <laughs> Flagellations. Thank you. Flagellation is a very <laughs> different thing. <laughs> and side note, unlike other satanic groups active during the same period, the Process Church did not practice nor believe in magic. Hmm. The church held public rituals like Christian practices such as baptisms, marriages, and weekly gatherings t- titled the Sabbath Assembly. Baptisms were performed at every elevation of status in the hierarchy of the church. The processions sang solemn hymns to the four deities during assemblies. So this was a hodgepodge of beliefs. It sounds like it. Um, So now that we know what they believed, it's time to get back to the Pilgrimage. So in late September, a tropical hurricane devastated their settlement. And while some of them elected to stay... uh, Robert and Mary and most of their followers decided to leave. The Yucatan experience remained an important part of the Process's Church's own mythology. 
By November of 1966, most of the process members were back in London. Between that and the end of the year, um, the process began to operate as a church, uh, becoming increasingly evangelical and focused on attracting new members. It opened a library, an all-night coffee shop known as Satan's Cavern, and it began issuing a magazine. Uh, which was which is still highly sought after as a collector's item. Their magazine was apparently very stylized. It was sort of in this um, fanzine style, but very well published. And apparently it's like a, a high collector's items for people who collect this sort of stuff. The church's activities included the interest of several celebrities active in the realms of music and sil- sim- cinema, Rumored to be amongst them was Jagger and Ronnie Woods of the Stones, apparently some members of the Beatles, and George Clinton, who included process writings in two of his seminal Funkadelic albums. During this time, uh, Robert and Mary made further international travels, spending time in East Asia, the United States, Germany, and Italy. And in the latter, they visited the ruins of Tremlin Abbey and a commune Uh, the commune established in the 1920s by British occultist Alistair Crowley. Uh, Yeah, I'm pretty sure uh, the Abbey that you named and Crowley were some of the foundations for the uh, occult assumption in the Nazi movement, so you know you're in good company when. Exactly. See, we we can throw this back to so many things. Yeah. We're going to have to start using the tag that um, they do on this disaster to say like if you haven't listened to all of our back we won't it's not inside jokes but we will say like hey remember that time we talked about the satanic panic and (laughs) Nazis from last week so from late 1968 onwards they beginning spending most of their time in the United States and the church opened chapters in many US cities the first was New Orleans Uh, where the remaining members of the Mexico colony settled. Several European chapters followed in Munich, Rome, and London, and in the early 1970s, it opened its largest chapter in Toronto. Ooh. So we aren't the most rational type of people around. Mm -mm. It might sound large, but researchers believe that even at its height, it only had a few hundred active members. Oh, well, fuck that then. Even in all of those spaces. (laughs) Um, this time you start to see sort of as they sort of grew they were really known for their theatrics not surprising they would go out um, and this around this time as with most cults you see to see a gradual unraveling led by greed mm-hmm. like you just talked about these people were greedy too um, with indentured panhandling dumpster diving child neglect uh, public access po- prostrosizing and apparently Heather's like Machiavellianism. Huh. Hmm, yeah. They would go out into the streets in their black and red robes and talk about the end of days. Apparently terrifying the bejesus out of everyone. They would just go out in, apparently they would do this in Toronto um, and start just talking about the end of days. And again, if you ask uh, Tim in the LA Times article, this was all Marianne. <laughs> again, Robert was not the head of this. It was just, he was just a puppet for her. And she was this sort of, very, and I, I'm sure, like, I haven't watched all of it. There's a few um, 
uh, pieces that I want to watch that I didn't know about until today. And I've like I've rewrote this story like three times because I keep finding <laughs> new like yeah. bits of information. So there's lots to link to. Uh, so and around this time, the relationship between Robert and Mary grew strained. Robert had begun a relationship with a younger woman, Morgana, who later became his third wife. They also disagreed about the direction of the Process Church. Mary believed that they should declare the Satanic phase to be over and to be replaced by the Christian phase, although Robert disagreed. So maybe it was a bit greedy because at that point, uh, the Satanic panic was starting, really starting to pick up. And the uh, church's, uh, as we'll talk about, the church's um, reputation had really been sullied and they'd started to really be linked to this sort of boogeyman. Right. But again, a few hundred members at their like most active period. Yeah, but the true for something that is the, not the true that. kind of joy of the satanic panic is to be able to think that it's everywhere and it's so many bigger than it really is, right? So only a couple hundred people can seem like a thousand and a hundred thousand when you're Pat Roberts and really on a roll. Like, it's just like like I didn't realize how. Um, like bonkers this would get until I was like holy crap like they were everywhere like they they were mentioned everywhere as this sort of like boogeyman like afraid of the dark the flesh narada flesh narada silence in the library um, Doctor Who like (laughs) this sort of like why everybody's afraid of the dark it's because of the process church the process church of the final judgment is in the dark and capturing your babies. Like, just that sort of, like, really friggin' bonkers. So, um, in 1974, uh, Robert and Mary separated. Robert took a a minority of the group's members with him, seeking to continue the process church in a manner akin to its original form, although he abandoned the project in 1979. I love how Wikipedia said, when he went into professional business... (laughs) Again, he became a toll booth operator. <laughs> Most of the church's members, however, retained their alliance to Mary. She renamed it as the Foundation Ch- Foundation Church of the Millennium, which in 1977... Okay, let's follow this. So this is the number of times the church has changed its name. So in 1974, she changed it to the Foundation Church of the Millennium. In 77, it became the Foundation Faith of the Millennium. In 1980, the Foundation Faith of God. Uh, Followers uh, generally referred to it as the Foundation. And then eventually it became a animal rescue. I'm not even kidding you. (laughs) I mean, she must have had a side business of printing her own business cards because you got to keep making those updates. So the group, uh, this group, defined itself as a Christian church, which required its members to believe in the Trinity and the divinity of Jesus Christ and his second coming. It also promoted a healing ministry, which was influenced by Pentecostalism. And like the process church, membership was organized according to a hierarchical system of degrees, which was led by a nine-member council of luminaries. Again, Mary's principal collaborator in this group was longstanding church member, Timothy Wiley. Uh, In 1977, he founded a group in New York called The Unit. (laughs) That's not terrifying. Yeah. (laughs) 
Now, uh, which he regarded as being part of the foundation. Mary disagreed with this move and sued him, although she lost. Uh, The unit soon disbanded, and Wiley then pursued an independent career which focused on communicating with aliens, angels, and dolphins. Oh, the trifecta, if you will. (laughs) Yeah. But again, he's gone on to, like, talk a lot about the church and talk a lot of shit about Mary. Yeah, but buddy, you're talking to Flipper and E.T. I don't think you got a whole lot of legs to stand on here. That's why I was like, and Wikipedia is going to be a large source for this because, again, they're on bias. (laughs) Uh, In 1982, Mary uh, moved the Foundation Faith of God to Utah and then established an animal rescue refuge. Then, again in 1993, the organization changed its name to Best Friends Animal Society. It removed all references to religious ideas from its statues. And in 2004, a featured article in the Rocky Mountain News publicly revealed that field, revealed that bre- the Best Friends origin in the Process Church. And a year later, McLean, uh, Mary died and the management of her charity was left to her second husband. So... During its existence, the Process Church uh, attracted much publicity. In urban myth, um, the Process Church became associated with ritual murders, although there was no evidence that such connection ever uh, existed. Rumors spread that a number of German shepherds were being sacrificed around San Francisco. These actions were sometimes uh, associated with the Process Church because process church members kept german shepherds as pets that was all the connection there was nothing else very specific with the german shepherd too but of course since they had them as pets yep uh nothing was ever proven that substantiated any of these rumors shocked um but the process church had become legendary both in the animals of hippie society and satanic lore uh, one could make the argument argument that due to extreme views blah 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 sorry I meant to cut that part out. So one of the reasons that they became so entwined with this sort of satanic panic, other than the fact that they had, uh, like, yeah. Satan. Um, other than the whole, yeah, other than the whole, their, you know, we worship Satan. Like, why else were they tied to Satanism? <laughs> but not in, like, but not, like, as I understand what I was reading, it's not really, like, a satanic, they don't really worship Satan. They just sort of look at the four... Yeah. Here are these four things. They give equal billing to everyone. They, you know, Jehovah and Christ are the same as Lucifer and Satan. They just have different... Pat Robinson and his ilk are not differentiating between that. <laughs> oh, no, no, no. Um, so, also, they were um, suspected as a possible connection between the Process Church and Manson. <laughs> yeah, yeah, when the police were investigating the Tate-Labanca murders, which were carried out by the members of the Manson family, suspected uh, police suspected a possible connection between the family's leader and the Process Church. When they asked Manson if they knew Robert, he responded, You're looking at him? Moore and I are one and the same. Ugh. They were not one and the same. Two members of the church subsequently visited the district attorney to stress that the group had nothing to do with Manson or his family. The church then included a brief article on Manson in the 1971 death issue of its magazine, which included a short essay by Manson himself next to another Roman Catholic writer, 
Um, next to another article by a Roman Catholic writer, Malcolm Mulderidge. The inclusion of Manson peace gained by interviewing him in prison was according, uh, was because they wanted, like Robert and Mary wanted to take advantage of the strange popularity the criminal, the criminal was enjoying with some youth groups. So they figured they would tag some of them, get their name out there by tagging on to old Manson. It makes sense. I mean, it's not the worst PR move. It's not the best PR move, but (laughs) I mean. (laughs) So when, uh, when the prosecutor at the Manson trials uh, later suggested in his book, Helter Skelter, that Manson may have borrowed uh, um, beliefs from the Procet's church, and even suggested that Manson may have been a member, the church actually decided to sue him. Because when they were linked to Manson, all of a sudden um, donations began to decline, church members received abuse in public, all of a sudden, like, this book, Helter Skelter, they were like, hey, you know, you're part of that church that likes Manson or was churched with Manson. So it did not go over well. So uh, the leader at the time to downplay their um, image, they decided to get rid of their black and red robes and German shepherds. And... Uh, yeah, so then they decided to limit their talk of the satanic element in their four divinities. So let's get rid of all of the really scary bits and start wearing fluffy jumpers. <laughs> oh, sorry. They didn't try to sue the person that wrote Helter Skelter. They sued the person who wrote The Family, Ed Sanders. Because he alleged that they had been that Manson had been a member of the Process Church. Mm. Vincent Begoli, the prosecutor at the Manson trial, suggested that Manson may have borrowed pieces from the Process Church, but not been a member. Sorry, that was me. I corrected myself later <laughs> down. As I said, I rewrote this like three times. <laughs> so again, the church took legal action against Sanders and his U.S. publisher, and the allegation was simply retracted, and so they actually reached, they won, and then they any subsequent printings of the family in the U.S. retracted, um, just took out the mention that he was part of the church. However, the same legal action with the book's British publishers, they lost. Yeah. So if you buy a copy of the family in Britain with the British publishers, you'll see that note about Manson being a member of the process church. But if you have the same book that was published the same time in the U.S., you will see that it's omitted. Hmm. In 1974, an America Bewitched um, cited the Process Church along with Manson, the Church of Satan, and the British occultist Aleister Crowley with sort of this just overarching satanic cloud. You know, again, with that satanic panic. Mm -hmm. So claims with the Protest Church have been linked to a vast variety of satanic conspiracies and crimes and was also endorsed by members of the La Roche movement. Sadly, uh, last note uh, about them, because again, they sort of ended up, they weren't that really satanic. 
Uh, they weren't really that bad. They were just kind of small. They had weird, um, you know, belief system. But uh, they used a swastika-like symbol, the P sign, as its insignia. The symbol had four uh, superimposed P letters. Um, and the four also was the trumpets of the four great gods. Okay. Uh, the group also used a second symbol as the sign of the union, which featured the letter alpha inside the letter omega, representing the intercourse of male U- Lucifer with the female Jehovah. Oh, boy. So that is my story on the not quite so scary, but really batshit crazy uh, process church of the final judgment who was not exactly the boogeyman that everybody thought it was. Uh, my favorite, like, right into the, like, mid-80s, they're still like, ooh, it still exists, and they're still pulling strings. Like, dude, the man is a toll booth operator <laughs> in New Jersey. I mean, but they didn't do themselves any favors. Oh, no, no, no. They were very big in the theatrics. They, they like, you know, sort of committed to that as a, a choice it was a, definitely a conscious choice and i mean they they sort of tied themselves to manson until they realized that it was not such a good idea but i mean at the time of the, the trials like it was just like the 60s and 70s were no. wild a fucking Bonkers. time not so <laughs> <laughs> like i just keep going back to that like every time i listen to a serial killer stories set in the 70s or whatever i'm like 70s or 60s i'm like it was a wild time (laughs) like how did these things happen but yes so that is uh the process church of the final judgment the satanic boogeyman that everybody should be and yet not really because they just like or shouldn't be because they really weren't that scary yeah they were just a sad group of people who got kicked out of Scientology. <laughs> who made some really weird PR choices that are both awesome and yet really dumb at the same time. Like, that's what they yeah, should yeah. go for. Like, I, I, like, they went, like, the whole black robes and, like... I, I, I don't know if I've ever really seen someone... Like, I think I've, I've only seen people on the street corner talking about um, how the world is going to end and we're all going to hell... In movies, like, I didn't really think that existed, but apparently these people uh, actually did that in the 70s. Then you and I need to hang out more, because I see them quite a bit. I mean, you just have to drive through downtown Ottawa, and you can I can point out the corners to you where they tend to stand. <laughs> I work in downtown Ottawa now. Like, I just usually see the, like, when, before they enacted that law, the uh, anti-abortion Oh, they're assholes, still there. But... They've just moved to block south. <laughs> That's the sad thing. So if you don't know where the Morgenthaler Clinic is, you just come across these people holding really gross and stupid signs. And you're like, why are you protesting the McDonald's across the street? I don't understand what's happening. But that's what it looks like they're doing. <laughs> oh, it's not so. <laughs> Poor McDonald's. Like, this is not what we have in our no, burgers, but, people. Yeah. <laughs> also, protesting McDonald's probably isn't the worst thing that you could do with your time. So... <laughs> Uh, but on that note, before we get sued by uh, oh, why Ray Kroc, we should probably close for the episode. Uh, and so we hope you enjoyed. If you would like to know more about us, head over to our website, which is www.rabbitholespodcast.com. 
redbubble.com. While there, you can check out the merch tab that takes you to our Redbubble store or the support tab that takes you to our Patreon page. And you can find us on social media, which uh, Elise is expertly curating this the last few weeks. Which she is curating uh, until she forgets to do it and then goes, oh shit, I have to post something. It's five o'clock and then post something. Because you were doing that for me. You were like, hey, you haven't posted anything, but I don't look at it right now. I'm too busy. I've hardly been in there. I'm so appreciative. Um, But hopefully back in December, I'll be able to help again. Um, uh, You can find us on Instagram at Rabbit Holes Podcast, on Facebook at Rabbit Holes Podcast page, Twitter at Rabbit Holes Pod. If you like what we're doing, you can rate us, give us a review, tell us what you think. You can email us, uh, which I think you might have already said. Did you say the email? No, but you should go for it. <laughs> okay. Uh, if you like what you're doing, you want to give us a correction of what we've talked about. Uh, if you want to send us a rabbit hole that you think we should definitely fall down, something that uh, is batshit crazy that you have fallen down recently, you can email us at rabbitholespodcast at gmail.com. I have a correction. What? You just said, if you like what you're doing, you should email us. I would like to correct you once again. Say, if you like what we're doing, you should email us. Every time. A long day and I'm very sick, all right? I'm going to cross-stitch that into a sign for you that you need to bring to all future podcast recordings. I know. I say that all the time. You do. Uh. Well... There is nothing left to do tonight except to remind you that if you don't know where you're going, any road will take you there. Bye, guys. Bye. Bye.